0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast.
1: As I feel as though God is asking us to grow in hearing his voice and responding. And, uh, so he has to get us doing that. Leaders, pastors, and board members. And, uh. Sometimes when we think we're listening to God, we're not sure what we're listening to, but I think that the Lord has other stuff on your hearts this morning that some of you are meant to come up and and kneel here or sit there at the front pew and pray this through as we sing over you. And I know our tradition doesn't do that very much, and maybe you'd feel uncomfortable, but we're going to meet a woman in the Scriptures in a moment who had to lay it out before God she was so earnest about getting contact with God she didn't care what people saw who was looking etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, and i think that as a as a collective body that the lord is leading us in this new year into some big decisions That we can't just depend on a few to make. That we need to make them together and we need to listen by faith to the voice of the Lord leading us. So if we would just pause now to sing that song one more time and um, we're going to stand as we do it and anybody that wants to come forward and just put their heart before God's altar and pray this song through on your knees up here or sitting at the front pew, just do that. And if no one comes up, that's fine because I'll know that I responded in the best faith I have to what God said for me to do. Let's stand.
2: and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry Everything to God in prayer Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer have we trials and temptations is there trouble anywhere, we should never be discouraged, take it to the Lord in prayer, can we find a friend so faithful? Take it to the Lord in prayer. To the Lord in prayer. Do Thy friends despise, forsake Thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. With His arms He'll take and shield.
1: Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy, yes. your abundant love toward us, yes. your individual leading upon our lives. Lord, we thank you for the special gaze that you have on each one of us as your children. And Lord, this morning, as we pray over these that have come forward and those that are sitting yet or standing, Oh God, we pray abundance of your presence upon the situation that they've lifted up to you. Lord, that they would find in the coming days the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts and minds and answered prayer. Lord, meet them in the need that they've brought before you, in the heaviness that they've brought to you. Thank you, oh God, for your incredible grace and for the faith that we can bring to you, that is responded to always with your incredible grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. It is always great to be able to open up the Word of God. And uh, this morning, as we're getting into the series on First Samuel, of course, the principal character is David, and uh, it was said of David in First Samuel chapter thirteen, verse fourteen that he was a man after god 's own heart, and he was an incredible guy wasn 't he He was a man that was a poet, He wrote half of the psalms, a musician, a shepherd, a warrior, a king, and uh, we have more information about David in the New Testament than all of the rest or any of the other Old Testament characters. We, we know more about David in the New Testament because of that. And yet, like any Old Testament saint or saint of all time that we could look at, he had his failings. He had his mistakes. And uh, the thing that was the saving grace in, the, in David's life was the fact that he tried to keep short accounts with God he tried to keep his heart soft before God. And so as we study 1 Samuel, we're going to indeed be studying a lot about the heart of faith in Christ. And 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, kind of ends up rising above all other verses in the, in the book to being kind of a theme, which, we're, which is on our banners at the front here. On the one side, you'll notice man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's First Samuel 16 and verse 7. And so we're going to be studying those themes throughout our time as we get an up-close look at David's life. God values so many of the values that are smudged by the world, forgotten by the world, overpassed by the world. Values like humility and integrity and faith and dependency on God and justice and mercy. And as we talked about last week, David's life begins after the end of a period called the Judges, when, when the theme verse of Judges is that at that time Israel had no king, because everyone just did as he saw fit in his own eyes. It was a time of chaos, anarchy, spiritually, wandering. One author writes this, that David was born into a, in, into a time characterized by a long drift away from God, a long drift away from God. I studied, as we looked at last week at Judges, I said that there were three primary lessons. Number one, the need for separation from the world. Number two, understanding the severity of God in His mercy and in His discipline. And number three, the need for each generation to have an experiential personal faith in God, relationship with God. And so during that period of wandering, spiritual wandering, God sustained his people with the raising up of these leaders called judges. And and, and a, a leader would be raised up, and the people would follow after him, and they would be delivered from their enemies, and then he would die, and they would go back to their ways. And it was a spiraling downward, each generation getting worse, getting more ungodly. And as we look at the first pages of 1 Samuel, we see God intervene, interrupt redemptive history and saying it's time. And so God's, this drifting is, is interrupted by a time of spiritual order with the coming of this, the kings. <clears throat> Before we rush on, let's just stop and acknowledge one simple but very broad lesson that comes just from what we've said so far. And that is this, that if you find yourself in a, in a state Of spiritual drift. If you find yourself in a place of spiritually drifting. Whether it's for 24 hours. Or whether it's for many years. The answer to that spiritual drift season of your life. Is a crowning of kingship. Of Jesus Christ in your life. It is that going back to God. And God saying... This is your king. The lordship of Jesus in your life is what matters. And now get back in step with him. That's what we learn from the period of the judges transitioned into the period of the kings. And so I no longer do what is ever fit in my own eyes to do, but I now am living for my own master. We're introduced to three significant leaders in the life, in the the books or pages of uh, 1 Samuel first one is Samuel, the second is Saul, and the third is David. And uh, all three come from absolute obscurity. Unlikely candidates for the role of leader and prophet and king and so on. And yet God chose them. And, and so the book of First Samuel is about a God who makes something out of nothing. Would you take your Bibles now and then and turn to First Samuel and chapter 1. <clears throat> First Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to read beginning in verse 1 to verse 20. Would you stand with me? There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zulfite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one has, was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because... He loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. May God bless his word. You may be seated. As with much of scripture that we would look at, there are two levels that we could engage the study of this passage on as well. It could be seen as a micro level and the macro level of looking at scripture. In other words, in this passage, we could confine our study only to the historical time and place events of Hannah and her infertility and how God meets her in that need. And that is the basic work of exposition. We take principles uh, from scripture out of a time and place historical event narrative and we lift them out and we apply them to our lives. That's what we do. But on another level that we easily can overlook when we don't reflect deeply on scripture is the macro level. It lifts our perspective above the historical setting and it ponders the picture from a bigger place and it asks questions like this question. Did the author or the editor of this biblical material have in mind a larger lesson for the people of Israel? And when we do that, we often come to see deeper and broader applications than the historical account gives us. And as is this multi-leveled interpretation of Scripture, so also is the multi-leveled application of Scripture. And so we come to the Word of God and the Scripture that we're looking at today could be applied to our own lives on a very intimate, personal level. It could be looked upon at a family level. It could be seen as maybe our church family and applied there. Or it could even be looked upon as what is the whole country of Canada or the world and the earth. And and we could apply it on various levels. In the case of 1 Samuel chapter 1, I believe that the author intends the reader to see in Hannah's experience the experience of Israel during the time of the judges. It was a barren time. It was a lonely time. It was a time when Israel felt that God had forgotten them and that judgment had triumphed over mercy instead of mercy triumphing over judgment. And so we see in the affliction of Hannah, this woman, the affliction of Israel. I believe the author intends the reader to see that level of understanding. And so as we study this passage, as we go through that green insert in your bulletin and look at the three points that we have for this morning, we are not only going to respond at a sympathy level for a woman who is facing infertility and crying out to God, we are going to respond as well for a nation that can no longer feel that God cares for them. We are going to respond at a level of understanding that this is a nation that has forgotten that God is a covenant God. We are going to respond by looking at this nation and remembering or seeing that they had forgotten the incredible faithfulness of God. And so let's begin with the first point, God, the God who sees the suffering of his people. It is easy to interpret life's uh, life's circumstances, especially negative circumstances upon us. By very unbiblical thinking and unchristian thinking, bad theology thinking, the reason that is is because partly because it just feels so very lonely. It feels so very terrible being in in awful circumstance, whether it 's emotionally or physically or relationally or however, it, it just feels so terrible and so it's easy to misinterpret those circumstances and what they're meaning. Another reason why it's easy to misinterpret life's circumstances is because everybody around us is misinterpreting the circumstances as well. We see that in Hannah's life, for example. In Hannah's case, her rival, this second wife of Elkanah's, Penina, would remind her of it regularly. This bad theology, this wrong thinking, this wrong interpretation of life's events upon Hannah. We can almost imagine, we can almost hear the taunts of this woman. It's, many people believe that, that Panina is, is Elkanah's second wife because Hannah was barren and it was an awful shame to not carry on the family name. And so he takes a second wife to have children, and so it makes Hannah's uh, life so miserable, not only that she is sharing the home with this other woman and her husband, but that she is fertile, and, 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 and Hannah is not a bitter pill to swallow. We can almost imagine on the way up to the temple at Shiloh, And on the way, maybe when Alcana was not looking and he's tending to something else, Penina comes up alongside of Hannah. And he says something like this. He says, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it, Hannah? You coming up with us to the temple each year to give thanks. When the one thing that you ask God for and want more than anything else, he won't give you. It's a bit of a joke, isn't it? The Lord has closed your womb. Isn't it obvious that He does not care for you or about you? What more does He need to do or say? Why, those are biting, stinging words. We could see how Hannah could easily fall prey to bad theology because it's all around her, you see, and especially in this woman's voice. Another reason why we can easily misinterpret. Life circumstances is not due to wrong theology, but actually because of right theology wrongly applied. That sounds strange, doesn't it? We can actually misinterpret life circumstances because of right theology wrongly applied. We see this in verse 5, for example. Everyone in the text, everyone in the family is in agreement that the reason for Hannah's barrenness is that God had closed her womb. God has done this. And in spite of our advanced knowledge and technology, we must not disagree with this conclusion. Even if doctors today can understand and explain infertility in advanced terms, it does not change the fact that God is the sovereign one, God's the all-powerful one. And so the natural question is, if God could do something about this, and is not doing something about this, He must just not care. See, that's wrong theology, bad thinking. When we go through difficult times, the natural question is to ask the same thing. Why? Why does God allow this? Does he care? Does he see my plight, know my pain, care about me? Worldly thinking, shallow theology, small faith quickly concludes that God either does not care or is not powerful enough to do something about something he cares about. It's easy, friends, to slide there in your mind. It's easy for puny humanistic thinking to paint God into one of those two corners even though the entire revelation of Scripture that God has given us about Himself never does that. Never. Never questions the sovereign, all-powerful God, never questions that everything He does is for love of His people. Never. So it's easy to misinterpret circumstances. What we learn from Hannah is that God is a God who sees the suffering of his people and cares. Look at verse 11 when she prays. She says, "O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Hannah has faith enough to continue to call God Almighty One. Sovereign, all-powerful. And to pray that he'd care enough to listen to her prayer and respond. It's very similar to the words that we read in Exodus chapter 3. On another time, a few hundred years earlier, in Egypt, as Israel is a slave people under a pharaoh, and Moses hears from God, and God says in Exodus chapter 3, 7, these incredible words, He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. And I have heard them crying out, because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, and so I have come down and to deliver them. It, he, he sees our misery, he hears our prayer, he is hard is concerned for our misery, and he will take action. He will do what is best for our needs. This is the God of 1 Samuel, as he was the God of Moses as well. God interrupts history to do so. Does it sound in the scripture like Hannah is making a deal with God in verse 11? Do you think that's the sound of the prayer? God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Kind of a bartering system. Did, Did you hear that? Maybe if some of you saw the movie Unbroken or you read the book about Louis Zamperini, did you get the dealing with God kind of prayer that goes up when he's 47 days on a raft in the South Pacific waiting to get either rescued or captured? God, if you'll just deliver us. Is it wrong to pray that kind of prayer? We must remember that in Israel at the time of Hannah, there were probably many women that were barren, that were calling out to God for children. God had already determined that the boy that she would give birth to would be the prophet Samuel, that he would anoint the first king of Israel. What Hannah could not see was that God was acting in history in the larger and longer view, and that what was asked what she was asked to endure was not only for her good and her faith, but for the faith of many others on a much larger scale and as hard as it is to receive in the moment, when you're down in the valley and you can't see over the next mountain, neither can we see the larger lessons that are for us, the larger purposes of God that are through us, when we are lost in the pain of our own circumstances, and we need to remember that God, even there, is the God who sees the suffering of His people, hears the prayers of His people, and is caring and loving, even in the midst of it all. Some of you, perhaps today, need to be convinced of this first point before you go on to the second point. Really, I mean that. Maybe you really need to be convinced that God's, God sees and God cares and God has the ability to do something about it. Because what, what, why pray to a God if you feel that he is either not powerful enough or doesn't even care about you? Why pray? Why go to that second stage? And yet Hannah does because she has faith. The God who hears the prayers of his people is the second point. We read about that awkward time in the temple in Shiloh. Where Eli the priest is at the door. And he notices that Hannah is standing. And her lips are moving. But, and she's praying in her heart. But he, she, he can't see or hear, hear, her, hear anything. And so given the times. Let's, let's understand this. Given the times of the judges. When everybody did what is right in his own eyes. Given the two sons of Eli. Who were awful young men. I think Eli probably had a few people that were pretty drunk in the temple during that time. And it is not a far stretch for us to imagine that he just assumes this woman's another one. And so he goes to confront her in that moment. And she responds with absolute honesty and tells about all of her pain, all of her trouble, She finally gets a chance to unburden her heart to another person outside of this closed family unit, this secret. And Eli responds by saying, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. You know, it's very important for us to note that before God answered Hannah's prayer, she shared her pain with someone who prayed for her. She lived in isolation probably only her immediate family knew her pain that she was barren and yet when she opened up and shared it beyond that closed unit. She was so lifted in spirit. We see in the scriptures that even before she knows that she's going to be pregnant, even before she knows that God heard her prayer and is going to answer it, even before that, in verse 18, we read that after Eli says this blessing over her, she was no longer downcast, she was able to get a good meal in her, and the next morning she got up and she worshipped the Lord. What's the lesson that we're to to take from this? If there's a lesson here, I think it has to be received at the very micro level, the very personal level that each one of us respond to God's word it. I think that pride and fear and shame and guilt and many other forces make us walk alone in our pain. They make us afraid to share our story. They make us unwilling. To talk about it with us and ask for real prayer specifically. Kevin, Doug, and I as pastors, we talk about this a lot. Community life in our church is one of the most important needs we have. The, one of the most important That as a a group of of individual believers and families, we come together and and this place is supposed to be the safest place on earth. For you to come with all your garbage, with all your pain, with all your suffering and misery. But instead, what we have made church so often in our culture, in this land, is that it is the last place that I'm going to open up. Shame on us. Why is that? We're all part of it. We all know the people that God has shown us just a little bit, that on a one-to-one we could display a little more vulnerability, humble ourselves a little more, receive from the Lord God through the messenger that he's put in your life, a little more grace, and lift the countenance of your spirit a little bit more, but instead we walk in isolation. We just sang it twice this morning. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The hymn writer got the vertical absolutely right. This need to open up to God and know Him experientially, personally, individually, daily, moment by moment. What the hymn writer didn't go on to speak about and write about Is the horizontal. Could have added a verse that said. All because we do not share our pain with those who care. And so we walk alone. That's not church. We have a lot to do here, don't we? And and it rests on each one of us. I mean the leadership could plan every kind of small middle sized big group activity and get to know this and meal there and this if if a person is wanting to walk in isolation they can walk in isolation I urge you I urge you church engage engage take one step one phone call one meal of hospitality, one piece in your life, a step of faith that will reach out to to be transparent with another brother or sister in Christ that God's put on your heart. You will be amazed, as Hannah was, how much blessing came from her. She hadn't even got her answer to prayer, and she's already eating, and she's not depressed anymore, and she's worshiping the Lord. Praise God. Well, verse 19, Hannah and Elkanah go home and they they go to bed. And it says in the scriptures that the Lord remembered her. I like the fact that it says the Lord remembered her before she conceived. It was God who closed her womb and it was God who opened her womb. And verse 20 says that in the course of time She gave birth, and God gave them a son. God is the one who sees our misery, who listens to our prayer, who cares for us. And then the third point, that answers from heaven on behalf of his people. Verse 20, Hannah's answered prayer. Her firstborn, she names him Samuel. In Hebrew, it means asked for We cannot see in the English translation, but in verse 20, actually, different variations or forms of the word ask are used four times, just in that one verse, verse 20. And so Samuel is called asked for, because I asked God for him, and he gave me what I asked for. You see, a woman who prays a genuine prayer, a genuine faith prayer, it's not a It's not a a, a formulaic prayer. It's not like, okay, we've got to go up to the temple in Shiloh again. I'll go with you, Elkanah. I don't want to go. This is a woman who's desperately seeking after God. The one place where she knows the Almighty that cares could meet me in this need. We see God respond in mercy and in His timing. And though she could not see all that God was doing beyond her little circumstance, beyond her tunnel vision... She was so grateful to God. And look at chapter 2 of First Samuel when she responds in prayer after this little boy is born and she makes good on her vow. You know, some people think that, that uh, Samuel was maybe three or four years old when that one year then she takes Samuel to the temple in Shiloh, the house of God, and she leaves him with Eli. I mean, just an incredible picture right in our minds there. Especially as we read ahead in a few weeks, we're going to see uh, what kind of sons Eli had. And how incredible God's protection over Samuel was. And, and, and then in, in response to this whole event, here's her prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. What? You just lost your son that God gave you. You just gave it back, him back. But she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor. From the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seeks them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. You see, after this whole ordeal, Hannah is so, so very much stronger in her faith in God. And we see an incredible testimony in this passage. And so, in the period of the judges, Each generation more corrupt, and in this one birth of a man used by God is raised up another generation that would turn the tide. Hannah's barrenness was over, and so was Israel's with the birth of Samuel. If you were to describe your relationship with God this morning, if you were to just think back when you just opened your eyes, your head was on your pillow. Before you opened your eyes, maybe your thought were, was in motion. If you could just think back to that. At some point this morning, did you, did you approach God consciously, personally, volitionally? Did you say, God, thank you for a new day? Or maybe, maybe your first time approaching God, really, if you're honest, is when we sang our first song, My Savior's Love, this morning in our service. Whenever it was, when you approached God, what was it like When you did that? What was your heart's response to God? Was Was it fear or guilt or shame or confidence or boldness? And what was God thinking about you when you approached him? What was on his heart? Do you think he was sad? Do you think he was thinking about your last failure? Do you think that he was happy to hear you come to him? Was he was he glad? to hear you talking to him your heavenly father was he compassionate or angry as we sing the last song we're gonna hear some great words and I hope they renew your thinking and give you some good theology about how you can approach God how all of us are meant to approach God like Hannah did sometimes in the bitterness of our soul's distress and yet with this confidence that God is the almighty one God does care for me in all of my pain and weakness. He knows my name. He cares. My life is fully in His hands and beyond me, He's got the whole picture in His mind. God bless you.
3: Let's stand together.
2: I have a man Formed my heart before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows. I have a mother He calls me His own sees each tear that falls, and hears me when I call, I have a father,
0: I have a father,
2: he calls me his own. matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and
0: hears me when Now that you've heard the sermon, I wonder how many more would have come to the altar this day. And I'm going to give you that chance. You don't have to come forward. But I want you to give yourself your own benediction. Talk about your need, your deepest want put it in God's hands and then together we'll give God the thanks at the end. Take the time, just you and God. Oh God, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and Nazarene. Wonder how you could love us. Sinners, Condemned, unclean. Oh, how marvelous is your love for us. We truly give you thanks as a corporate group. Amen.
3: Everyone, if you could just hang on one second. Uh, Just before we came up, we had a phone call from Susan Shallcross. A lot of you know George and Susan, and they were in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Uh, George, uh, Susan said George has been choking for hours. He has had trouble with that in the past, but all that she could say to me was that it's really bad, and she asked if we could pray together as a church family. So please join with me in prayer. Father, we come before you as brothers and sisters, concerned about our brother and our sister. Thank you for George and for Susan, and I thank you that you do know their name and you know where they are, and you know what's going on in George's body. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would bring uh, resolution to this, that you would bring healing to George. I pray that you would give peace to him as he's struggling to breathe, and I pray that you would give peace to Susan as well. May they know your presence, and may they see your hand today. And may we gather around them as a church family in every way that you call us to, and I pray that they would know that they are loved by you and by us. We ask for your mercy and for your help in their situation. We pray this in Jesus' name.
2: Amen. Go in peace.